Scripture shapes the lives of billions of people around the world. Yet scriptures, both the Bible and the Quran, only gain meaning when they are interpreted by the human mind. Minding Scripture, a podcast from the Department of Theology at the University of Notre Dame, explores the meeting of reason with the scriptures of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. I am Gabriel Said Reynolds, Professor of Islamic Studies and Theology in the World Religions World Church Program at Notre Dame. Joining me are the co-founders of the project, Professor Francesca Murphy. Welcome. Hello. Professor Svinovic. Hi, looking forward. And Professor Munim Suri. Thank you for having me. Friends, today our task is to speak about Moses, a figure of immense importance in the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, also in the New Testament's presentation of Jesus, and the figure who is most often named in the Quran, 136 times. But why don't we start, Svi, with the figure of Moses in the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament? And let's start at the beginning of the story of Moses. The birth of Moses, as you know, is set within the larger story of a murderous Egyptian ruler, the Pharaoh. It has some details that might seem legendary. I mean, Moses is saved when his mother hides him in a basket in the Nile River. Could you sort of set the scene for us? And, and what is the message that the biblical author means to send by telling the story in the way that the author does? Right, so uh, it, is a, it is a striking story. It's a story that has some ancient Near Eastern resonances. I think it's important to appreciate that Moses' birth story, the story in which he's placed on the Nile River because Israelite boys are threatened with death and then he is drawn from the river by the daughter of the Pharaoh. That's kind of situated in a larger structure of birth and salvation that you find in the beginning of Exodus and that really characterizes the Exodus story. The right. first chapter of the book of Exodus is all about the uh, miraculous multiplication of the Israelites so that they transform from a small family into right. a nation and then you have the birth of Moses and he is drawn from the water uh, and that's kind of anticipating uh, what happens uh, some 12 chapters later when the Israelites leaving Egypt are drawn through the Red Sea to their national salvation. Right. So Moses here is a kind of figure for Israel in a certain is, respect. I mean, you have the introduction of the, sort of the nemesis, the figure of Pharaoh, right at the beginning of Exodus, I think, right? A Pharaoh who, who no longer knew Joseph right. or mm -hmm. is that? So, I mean, is that sort of, I don't know, like hero and anti-hero, are they sort of opposed in the biblical narrative, Moses and Pharaoh, or is it more complicated? Or? Uh, right, there, yeah, they, are, they certainly are opposed. On the other hand, it is more complicated because Moses is, after all, saved by the daughter of the Pharaoh, and he is raised in the Pharaoh's household, and so you get a, a complex, even a psychoanalytically complex figure of a Moses who is Israelite and Egyptian. This has been the, the subject of uh, interest by uh, psychoanalysis. Uh, Sigmund Freud famously wrote about Moses in between uh, Egyptian and Israelite right. uh, in his book. So yeah, it's a complicated psychological portrait in addition to this kind of portrayal of Moses as symbol of Israel. I think in some of the movies and popular renditions, Moses sort of at a certain point as he's growing up sort of realizes that he's an Israelite and he's not an Egyptian and this is like yeah, psychological trauma. Or... Is that in the Disney? Yeah, well, it's characteristic. I mean, the Bible characteristically leaves gaps, right? It, it, uh, th that's the way the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, tells stories with a lot of gaps, and so it leaves a lot of room for later interpreters to fill in the story, reimagine it in many different ways. I think the heroic uh, rule of Moses is also emphasized in the Quran. For instance, that Moses stood up against Pharaoh and reject his claim being God. And also in other part of uh, stories in the Quran, 
you know, the, the heroic aspect is also emphasized in the sense when Moses led his people out of Egypt. So from the very beginning, uh, the Quran seemed to emphasize the heroic aspect in the sense that his actions are portrayed in a manner so dramatic that Moses can be seen as a Quranic hero. Yeah, and there's a, there's a twist in the plot as well in the Quran, in as much as, if, if I have it correct here, that Moses is not raised by the daughter of Pharaoh, but by Pharaoh's wife. Right. I mean, I think it's in Quran 28. It's Pharaoh's wife, not his daughter, who sort of suggests that, that she and Pharaoh adopt Moses. So there's a father-son conflict almost. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, one question that interests me about this whole scenario is, I mean, it sounds mythical, right? I mean, with the basket and the river and the, the murder of all the Israelite boys, and is that it? Is it? Is it a myth? And maybe that's fine. Maybe, maybe even a believer can look at it as a myth and find meaning therein. Or is there something maybe historical here? I mean, how do you, how do you navigate through myth and history when it comes to the story of Moses? When I went to university, I was taught the whole tradition of biblical scholarship. And so I come home in the Christmas holidays and my mother thinks she can have intellectual conversations with me. And so she says, what do you think about Sigmund Freud's portrayal of Moses? And by this time, I've stopped believing that Moses existed. So I don't know what to say about Freud's interpretation of Moses. And years later, I was really surprised when John Paul went to the Holy Land and he was at Sinai and he talked about Abraham and Moses having been there. And I had never heard any adult intellectual who believed that these people existed. And these great figures like Abraham and Moses are figures of faith. Their deeds exist in the land of faith. They don't exist in the land of empirical history. I mean, the fundamental problem is that we only know them from the biblical narrative and later, of course, the Quranic narrative. But if we're speaking of the the ancient sources, we've just, that's all we got. We've got the Bible, right? Is there? Right, I mean, we have, we have evidence of um, a figure, a, a people Israel in relation to Egypt, Hapiru, various uh, Semitic peoples taking control of, being expelled from Egypt. So there are, uh, but, the, but the idea of reconstructing on the basis of external evidence, anything like the story of Israel and Egypt and the Exodus that we have in the Bible, that's simply not possible. And right, so, so it does become a kind of a fraught question. Of course, the traditional position simply was, uh, oh, th these, are, these are to be taken as historical narratives in a straightforward sense. And it seems to me uh, nowadays we have to kind of think about more sophisticated ways, say, of looking at the Bible's truth claims in relation to uh, uh, the standards of history and historiography that we usually bring to the table. The Quran seemed to be more concerned with the kind of ethical, moral, or theological relation than with the, the, the question of historicity. So the purpose of stories in the Quran is not to tell the development, the historical development of religion, even when it referred to biblical figures like Moses. It does not provide the whole story in right. one chapter. You don't get the details. It's you don't get the detail. Right. Yeah. As we know that there are at least seven episodes of Moses' life in the Quran scattered in different parts. But even one single episode is requested in one in more than one chapter, in one 
more than one place with different emphasis. And sometimes we identify some tensions. So the purpose is not to tell history, but rather what kind of theological, ethical, and moral lesson that the reader or the hearer would, would learn. I think in Christianity, it's the person, the fact that somebody is given the divine name and somebody is given the law. The Old Testament Hebrew Bible doesn't just say, and the divine name was such and such, mm -hmm. or, and here's the law. It tells you a story where somebody is given. So the story and the figure, the character seem to matter in Christianity as a character. Right. But that character can only be seen by the eyes of faith. Right. The, the Quranic characters are often portrayed as moral paradigm. If we examine, you know, different stories in the Quran, especially uh, the biblical uh, figures, including Moses, of course, we can identify certain pattern that each of those characters were sent to a particular community, and some people follow them and others reject them. So perhaps this is intended for the audience of Muhammad to learn some lesson, that those who reject Muhammad as a prophet will be punished like the early community was punished because they rejected their prophet. In the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, Moses practically refuses the mission when it's given to him by God, and he kills someone, and he's... Does he do that in the Quran? No, I don't think that, that yeah. there is an explicit reference to uh, Moses' rejection, uh, yeah, defined rejection, mission. but the killing, the, the killing. allusions to the killing of an Egyptian. Yes. Right. Yeah, in yeah. Surah 26 and elsewhere. There's, a, there's allusions to it, and to at one point I think he blames right. the devil or blames Satan. Right. But not rejection yeah. of the mission. Yeah, well, I think the Jewish and Christian Moses is not a moral paradigm. Interesting. Do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he yeah. may, right, a moral, yeah. he may be a moral paradigm, but not only a moral paradigm. He's he very human. He can to a moral paradigm, yeah. right, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's, he's very human. I mean, his anger also yeah. is, is yeah. Uh, he is yeah. famously angry. He loses his temper incidents. several times yes. with the Israelites. <laughs> so, friends, let's, let's sort of circle back here and highlight two particular episodes in the Exodus telling of the story of Moses. And the, the first of these is the mysterious story of Moses' divine call from the midst of the burning bush. The scene, of course, unfolds not in Egypt, but in, in Midian. Uh, Moses has ended up there precisely after the killing that we were just speaking about, and he, he was fleeing for his life um, from those who sought um, revenge against him or justice. And then one day, while tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, um, the following unfolds. And I'll just read the passage. It's a bit long, but I think it will help us sort of orient our conversation around the different elements of this. So this is in Exodus, and we read, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked, and lo, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. When the Lord saw that, he turned aside to see, or rather, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Put off your shoes from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. 
And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring forth my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought forth the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Sri, this scene presents us with a compassionate God. We have this vision of God hearing the crying of his people Israel in Egypt, but it also includes this mysterious element, the bush and then the revelation of the divine name. I mean, there's a lot here. I don't know where you want to begin, but I mean, maybe particularly within a Jewish reading of Scripture, what is the importance of this episode of the burning bush? Yeah, well, it's interesting that you pulled out the idea of the compassionate God who hears the crying of his people and then this mysterious element, the name of God, the bush, because I think the tendency in the Jewish reading of Scripture is to assimilate those latter elements to the first. That is to say, uh, to think about God's appearance in the bush, uh, the name of God, in terms of God's uh, compassion for Israel. Jewish scripture, for example, picks up on this oddity, right? In the last verse uh, that you read in Exodus 3, verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so there's this kind of inconsistency. Is God's name, I am who I am, or is it I am? Uh, and so they read it as a kind of hidden conversation between God and Moses. God says to Moses, I am who I am, meaning, or rather, as a Hebrew reader might understand it, I will be who I will be. God is telling Moses, I am with Israel in its suffering in Egypt and I will be with them in their future sufferings. Uh, to which Moses responds with a kind of a characteristic Jewish humor, enough to mention the contemporary suffering. We don't need to talk about future sufferings. And God says, uh, you're right, okay, fine, I am. Uh, that's my name, meaning I will be with you and I am with you in your sufferings in Egypt. And so the revelation of God's name isn't a, a kind of revelation of uh, a kind of a philosophical essence, uh, but a revelation of his historical affiliation with the people of Israel. And likewise, the, the, the whole notion of the bush, why the rabbis are interested in the fact that God appears in this, what they take to be a thorn bush, and then there's fire, so there are these destructive elements. There are thorns, there are fires, and, and uh, those to, to rabbinic readers signify the oppression in Egypt. Uh, these are the destructive forces that are besetting Israel and Egypt. Uh, and God, by appearing in this midst, is sympathetically suffering with Israel, indicating his willingness to enter into Egypt, as it were, uh, and to bring his people from there. That bit is anthropomorphic, isn't it? I mean, this notion that God is hearing the cries going up, it, it makes me think of the story of the blood of Abel that we have earlier in Genesis. You know, doesn't he? to hear the cry of the blood of Abel coming from the ground or something like but that? The, right, in right. the very first chapter of Exodus, it begins with God hearing the cries of the people of Israel. Already. And, and so it's in Exodus 1, yeah, he hears yeah. the cry. So it's, it's very anthropomorphic. It's like this father is leaning over and hearing his children crying. It's anthropomorphic all the way through. Oh, it's quite, yeah. quite beautiful. I mean, right. I mean, it does raise this question. Does he need to, to wait for the cry? Can he not see the oppression without hearing the cry? But there is this kind of deep anthropomorphic element in the 
characterization of God in uh, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, and then Jewish interpreters really run with that uh, and, and multiply the anthropomorphisms. Yeah, I think the intimate uh, conversation between God and Moses, even in the Quran, is emphasized to make the sense that Moses is the Israelite prophet par excellence, that God spoke with him in uniquely intimate setting. Face to face. Face to face. Well, but yes. then if he's the prophet par excellence, then how does that compare with Muhammad? Well, this, you know, complex question that we can discuss in, in the second part about how Muhammad often relate himself to the stories of Moses as if the stories of Moses is model for himself. Oh. Mm -hmm. But that notion of, of speaking directly, or God speaking directly to Moses is certainly important. It's certainly important. Important. Yeah, yeah, it distinguishes Moses. What about the Christian reading, um, Francesca, of this episode? We had some um, reflection from Sfi in regard to the interpretation of the divine name in Jewish tradition. How about in Christian tradition? Is it read the same way or differently? In Christian tradition, this is like the beginning of Christian metaphysics. Uh, one Christian philosopher in the 20th century said all Christian metaphysics hangs on this episode with the revelation of the divine name. It's been very important. I am that I am, Ea Asher Aya, was translated into the Septuagint, the Greek version right. of, 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 the, of the first seven books as ego eimi ha on, which in English would be I am he who is. Right. And so he who is, the idea this was read by Christian metaphysicians as meaning God is existence. God is the only one is who different. is existence. Yeah. To be God is to exist and nothing else exists of itself. Yeah, and, and I wouldn't want to uh, kind of make a categorical distinction between Jewish and Christian readings on this score. There is a Jewish metaphysical tradition that also kind of attributes great importance to the... Um, Maimonides. To the, yeah, yes. and Maimonidean, um, among others, right, to, to, to the notion of God as essential being. But that strain, say, in Jewish thought, uh, is certainly less central. than. Although in Jewish thought, unlike Christian thought, there's a prohibition on pronouncing the, the divine name, right? Or um, right, or right. even, well, even the, writing it in the fully sort of vocalized form, right? Um, that, that's right, that's right. I mean, the, the, the tradition in the Jewish context is to refer to God as Hashem, meaning the name. And so uh, one only speaks of God in indirect ways. Well, friends, maybe we should take a pause here and we'll take a break and we'll be back to engage more with the Hebrew Bible episodes with Moses and then we'll turn to the Quran as well. Welcome back to Minding Scripture. We were just discussing the question of the revelation of the divine name in Midian to Moses, and we were just speaking about how there's a prohibition in Jewish tradition, but Francesca, you want to add something more about well, that? Yeah. I think it's very interesting. In Christian tradition, I am who I am, was always read metaphysically, and as meaning the essence of God is to exist, and for no one else is it their essence to exist, their character and nature is to exist only for God. And in the 20th century, reading biblical criticism with better understanding of the meaning of the Hebrew, people reflected more on that and on the story as a story. And so there's the argument that by saying, I am that I am, God sort of refuses to give his name. And all he does is reveal a mystery. 
And so God reveals a mystery. And I don't think that goes against the metaphysical interpretation, because for God to say, I am he who is, is to say, I am utterly mysterious. And to refuse to pronounce that name seems a good way of respecting that. Right, and you do have other biblical texts where right, angels do refuse to reveal their names. Right. So yeah. uh, here it could the be... River yeah. Jabbok with, right. with Jacob, That's right, right. Yeah. that's right. So this yeah. might be along those lines. Yeah. Uh, but right, right, the idea of a being who is yeah, totally other than, yes. uh, than other human beings is essentially mysterious in itself. Yeah. So as you say, there isn't necessarily intention. Well, of course, we read in that episode that there was a sign about the veracity of the words that Israel would return to this same mountain. And I'd like to, to turn to that episode of Israel's return after their escape from Pharaoh and in Egypt. Um, and then um, I'd like to address something we were just read. Of course, the burning bush episode is Exodus 3. We're going to read from Exodus 24. You know, after the escape from Pharaoh's iron fist, the devastation of the plagues, the destruction of the Egyptian army in the sea, as God predicted, Moses brings the Israelites back to Mount Sinai. And I should say, Gabriel, maybe yeah. it's just interject. I mean, that this is the, the burning bush in the Hebrew is sneh. Uh, that's the that's the term, and so we do when we're turning now from the burning bush, the sneh, to Mount Sinai, Sinai in Hebrew. Uh, we are uh, kind of following the signals uh, of these kinds of bookends of the narrative in the in the Hebrew itself. So there's a there's a almost a word play. A there. verbal play. That's right between right. the bush, the sneh, and then Mount Sinai, Sinai, Sinai sneh, and oh, Sinai. I that's that's right. very I didn't know that. Yeah. So then Moses encounters God. Um, and on this occasion, this second or this return to, to Mount Sinai, Moses and indeed all Israel, of course, receives not a name but a law. There's a lot of different passages one could read from. I'm just going to read from Exodus 24, which is, I think, sort of sealing the deal, if we could put it um, that way. <laughs> so um, we read, And he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship afar off. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. I suppose I'd like to start in commenting on this passage with, with the role of Moses. Moses is the only one who can come near to the Lord. Is he then an intercessor? Is he a prophet? Is he a, a mediator? I mean, how, how do we define Moses within this context of the revelation of the law? In Exodus 3, that's clearly a prophetic call narrative. So I, I would characterize Moses as a prophet. I think that's what the Bible is doing. Right. Yeah, and Moses here, right, as a prophet, I mean, a prophet really is a mediator, and that, that's a kind of a two-way function, both of mediating on behalf of the people, on behalf of a sinning people for God, and then also delivering God's word to the people. So, uh, so he has all those, those roles here, and here he has, uh, of course, the, uh, the role that's 
uh, most characteristic for him in the, in the Jewish tradition, Moses is known as Rabbeinu, our rabbi or our teacher, as the one who delivers the law. And that's what really makes Moses uh, uniquely important for the Jewish tradition, that uh, the law, which is um, at, the, at the center of Jewish tradition, rests on Mosaic authority. Um, so there is a certain commitment to, and we mentioned earlier, the uniqueness, uh, the unique clarity of Moses' prophecy. Um, and that's because of his role as, not so much as legislator, but as legislating mediator, as it were, delivering the law. Maybe I'm reading too much into this episode here in Exodus 24, you know, the last line, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. But, I mean, that's sort of like the heart of, of everything in Judaism. It, I mean, it seems to me, namely, it's the, it is the law which is at the center or which mediates a relationship between God and Israel. You, I mean, is it too much to say you cannot be a Jew without some sort of concern for this law or is that over, can I overstating it? Can I, yeah. I once read an interview with Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who was the chief rabbi in England, and they asked him about Moses on Sinai. And he said, I believe in the revelation to Moses on Sinai. On this, I stake my faith as a Jew. I've always remembered the words, which is pretty strong. Uh, right, right. Yeah, well, the question, I mean, one of the touchstones, say, of, of traditional Orthodox Judaism, in contrast with more liberal denominations, has been, and this gets us back to the question of uh, historicity, has been this claim about uh, the historicity of the Sinai narrative. But, of course, it is analytically possible, and there are, um, outside of Orthodox Judaism today, even within Orthodox Judaism, uh, developed ways of, of thinking about the law independent of historicity, but we still do end up with the law. I mean, this, uh, this line in the Hebrew, we will do and we will be obedient, na'asev nishma, is uh, perhaps the most, uh, one of the most famous lines in a, in a traditional Jewish context. In the traditional Jewish context, they're actually uh, puzzled by the order. Uh, literally, it's, uh, right, we will do and we will hear. We and will so hear Israel, is exp yes. Israel here is kind of taken as expressing a kind of a, a, a willingness to follow God independent of the content of the law. Incidentally, this line has an echo in the Quran, right, where it actually has the Israelites as maybe an example of disobedience, saying we will, dis we will disobey, we will not obey, right? And right. we will rebel, I think is the word. It could be even a play on the Hebrew mm -hmm. there because the Arabic is similar to na'aseh. The Arabic for disobey, rebel is quite similar. I mean, it's some different concepts. Yeah, there was a reference to um, an incident during the time of, of Muhammad when some of his followers tend to followed the way Jews described their prophet. But then it was understood that this is kind of mocking against the prophet and therefore Muslims are forbidden from saying the same statement. Right, right. Mm. So, I mean, we, we need to move on because I want to get to the New Testament and Quran, but I just one last thing maybe. There's a, an allusion to covenant here or rather to the book of the covenant. And I guess that's more central the notion of the Mosaic Covenant uh, may be more central in, in Christian readings of the Old Testament than Jewish readings of the Hebrew Bible, or, yeah, what, what about this notion of covenant? Uh, well, I mean, I'd say that, uh, that, that that's a fair description of Judaism, that uh, the category of covenant, even though it is actually quite centrally important in the Hebrew Bible itself, this is one of those cases where there's something of a divergence between the Hebrew Bible and later Jewish interpretation. I think maybe uh, Jewish interpreters might have been uncomfortable with the idea of covenant as an overarching category because 
uh, it almost inevitably implies a certain conditionality to God's relationship with Israel. And so rather than speaking about covenant, typically the rabbis and then later interpreters will speak about the law. And so God's relationship with Israel is kind of established on genealogical grounds. Uh, it's given content at Sinai, but more through the law rather than through the covenant. So the law isn't thought of so much as a, a set of stipulations on which the covenant rests, but a set of divine prescriptions uh, embodying divine wisdom and prescriptions that Israel should follow as the people of God. Right. Covenant is berit, which is a treaty, right? Mm -hmm. The treaty is a deal. That's, and there are, there are examples around the ancient world of, of, of these treaties. And the treaties are between nations. Mm -hmm. And so this is somehow, this is a, the unbreakable treaty. Romans 9 to 11, Paul says, God will not forsake his people. So it's a kind of unbreakable treaty. No matter what happens on the human side, the treaty can never be broken by God. Romans 9 to 11. Well, there's a lot more to say about Hebrew Bible Old Testament and Moses. I mean, he's there's many ways the central central figure, but he's not absent from the New Testament either. And I, I think Moses is there in um, maybe in, in many um, sort of implicit ways that we could draw draw out a bit. But sometimes they're explicitly. I mean, the scene I think of is the Transfiguration, where Moses and Elijah appear on either side of Christ when he ascends to a high mountain with several of his disciples. But what can we say about the figure of Moses? I mean, was my right? Is there Matthew's implicitly is Moses? Matthew's gospel is supposed to be the most Jewish gospel. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is consistently presented as the new Moses. So the, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, he's supposed to be giving the law from a mountain like Moses gave the law. I looked and I found one strong reference to actually to Exodus 3 to this discussion about the divine name, where the Sadducees were the Jewish group at the time of Jesus who did not believe in the afterlife. They denied the resurrection of the dead. Right. And so they asked Jesus about, remember when the Sadducees come and say, well, what if a woman married seven guys in a row? Right. Which one would she right. be married to in heaven? And right. she's trying, they're trying to prove the idea of the resurrection is, is mm -hmm. ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And Jesus replies, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And that's a reference to Exodus 3. So God is. So he's the God of the living. And so people will have life, not just death. That was the clearest New Testament reference that I found on the mouth of Jesus. God is the God of the living, uh, not of the dead. Right. In, in the, the, the Bread of Life discourse of, of John 6, there's something in there. I mean, clearly, also John, at least there, is interested in saying, you know, this is a mosaic-like figure, this Christ, and, mm -hmm. and something greater than Moses, right? Because there, the, the, the crowds around Jesus, they say something like, well, Moses gave us manna in the desert. What sign will you work? What will you bring down? And then th there's this discourse, which I assume is an allusion to, to the Eucharist yes. um, about, the, about the bread of life and Jesus himself as the, as the bread of life. So, I mean, there's this claiming of the figure of Moses by the gospel authors, isn't yes. there? Yes. Um, that um, you understand Moses somehow through Christ or that Christ somehow um, is, not, is, is the new Moses and more. Or. Yeah, I'd say, right, that he, um, 
again, he doesn't figure centrally in a lot of the New Testament, but to some extent Moses is one of these figures through which Christianity is negotiating its relationship to its Jewish roots, and that involves this kind of complicated dance of at the same time acknowledging the authority of Moses uh, and at the same time somehow in some way or another uh, moving past him or um, framing him within a larger uh, Christocentric structure that gives him meaning. And something similar might be going on in, in the Qur'an. Um, we could maybe turn to that now. Um, sure. The Qur'an, the scripture of Islam, by tradition revealed to the Prophet Muhammad in the cities of Mecca and Medina between the year 610 and 632 AD or CE. And it's structured according to 114 chapters or surahs. And you already, Munim, discussed a bit the relationship between Moses and Muhammad. Right. Does Moses sort of a type or anticipation, a prototype of Muhammad? Is that how you would put it? Or? But in a way that the Quran described the story of Moses as a model for Muhammad himself. So, for instance, the experience of Moses to become a prophet, which involved key features like meeting the transcendent God, feeling insufficient strength in the face of missions, or experiencing fear uh, and overcoming it, and ultimately finding strength in God in the face of humiliation. And it seems from the Quranic perspective, Muhammad was able to perceive all these issues through the mirror of Moses' life. So Moses is very important in Muhammad because in one hand that he tend to look at Moses as an as, as example how to become a prophet. However, when we look at you know, post-Quranic literature in the tafsir, for instance, in the Quran commentaries, you will find the opposite direction, that many Muslim exegetes tend to distinguish Muhammad from Moses. For instance, that Muhammad was illiterate. He did not enjoy the special education of Moses in the house of Pharaoh. Which is uh, a, it's a good thing, right, in the case of Muhammad, because it, a it's a sign thing. that his, God, his wisdom came directly right from God. Right, from God. Yeah. And not, not, not another uh, way, you know, to, to, to describe how Muslim exegetes tend to distance Muhammad from yeah. Moses is that Muhammad is described as, you know, servant, prophet type of person, in opposed to Moses as the king prophet type of of of, of, of right, prophet. Right. And so you're just so yeah. you're saying that in the Quran there's a kind of more of a continuity between Moses and Muhammad, and then it's okay. in later tafsir Quran commentary literature that you get a kind of a more polemical relationship. Right. That's right. That's, 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 right. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah. Well, as we did with the Book of Exodus, I want to focus in sure. on one particular episode in the Quran involving Moses, which in fact is an episode that's shared between Bible and Quran. The, the story of the golden calf, I think in the Quran, right. it's just, it's not golden, it's yeah. just called, referred to as the calf. Right. But let, let's read here from um, Surah or chapter 7 of the Quran, Al-Araf, as it's known, starting in verse 148. The people of Moses took up in his absence a calf, cast from their ornaments, a body that gave out a lowing sound. Did they not regard that it did not speak to them, nor did it guide them to any way? They took it up for worship and they were wrongdoers. But when they became remorseful and realized they had gone astray, they said, Should our Lord have no mercy on us and forgive us, we will surely be among the losers. 
When Moses returned to his people angry and indignant, he said, Evil has been your conduct in my absence. Would you hasten on the edict of your Lord? He threw down the tablets and seized his brother by the head, pulling him towards himself. He said, Son of my mother, indeed this people thought me to be weak and they were about to kill me. So do not let the enemies gloat over me and do not take me with the wrongdoing lot. He said, My Lord, forgive me and my brother and admit us into your mercy, for you are the most merciful of the merciful. Indeed, those who took up the calf for worship shall be overtaken by their Lord's wrath and abasement in the life of the world. Thus do we requite the fabricators of lies. Yet to those who commit misdeeds, but repent after that and believe, indeed after that, your Lord shall surely be all-forgiving, all-merciful. Munim, why, why is the Qur'an interested in this episode? I mean, there's, there's a lot of Moses material in Hebrew Bible or Testament, and only selected episodes appear in the Qur'an. So, so why the Golden Calf episode in particular? I think the Golden Calf episode is connected to larger issue central in the Qur'an, which is the obedience to the one God and rejection of false God. And especially that the Qur'an vehemently reject the idea of idolatry and worship of, of idol. So the, the Kaf episode is mentioned in the Qur'an, suggests that the Qur'an intends to show that this idol cannot do any harm or benefits. So that's what monotheistic should be built on. So, so maybe it's an episode that has relevance for Muhammad's own day and the challenge of, of polytheists or pagans in his context or idolatry. Right, yeah. right. Th exactly. The Kaf episode is mentioned uh, three times in the Quran. Mm -hmm. In chapter 7 that you just mentioned, you know, the person who misled uh, Israel is not mentioned there. But in chapter 20, the person who's misled uh, Israel is mentioned. His name is Samiri. Also relevant to our discussion is that the kind of punishment that Moses imposed on Samiri, that he was asked to return to wilderness, to live alone. What happened with the Israelites, right? So Israel uh, repent and God forgive them. So here's the thing, which marked, uh, you know, the renewed relationship between God and the children of Israel. So repentance is key here, just like you know, the Meccan, if they repent and follow their prophet, they will achieve salvation, just like Israelites who, you know, rebel against God, worship idol. But once they renew their relationship with God, they also achieve salvation. So do we see, I mean, in this passage, uh, is that the, the notion that Israel repents or the Israelites repent is that mentioned explicitly elsewhere? Because in this, this passage does speak about people repenting or the forgiveness of the penitent, uh, but is there elsewhere some more explicit account of the notion that it, the Israelites themselves repent? I guess because, I mean, I mean, just a background to my question is that, I mean, looking at this passage in comparison to the biblical passage, uh, what's strikingly missing is Moses' prayer on behalf of Israel. Right. Uh, here, right. Moses prays on behalf of himself and his brother, but doesn't pray on behalf of Israel, which is in the, in the Bible, God uh, tells Moses that he is going to destroy the entire people, uh, and then uh, Moses prays on behalf of Israel, uh, and God relents, even though 
uh, some subset of the people, perhaps the chief agitators, are punished uh, with, with, uh, with death. There is that intercession there. I think both in this chapter and the other chapter that I just mentioned, chapter 20, uh, the Quran doesn't explicitly say that Israel themselves repent. However, when confronted by Moses, you know, why did you worship the idol, the, the calf? The response is very interesting, saying that it is not me. It was Samiri who misled us. Mm -hmm. So what I want interesting that when, you know, this kind of interruption from Moses' intimate conversation with God, and he returned to the Israelite angry, even, you know, he was so upset at his brother Aaron. And I think Moses' prayer here is related to that he was so upset with, with his brother, and therefore he asked God to forgive him and his brother and, you know, to enter both of them into the mercy of God. Well, maybe as we work towards a conclusion, just a final thought from, from each of you about the role of Moses in spirituality. So in, in Jewish, Christian, and Islamic spirituality, what role, having observed the scripture, what can we say about the role that Moses plays for, I mean, maybe we can start with you, Sfi, in Jewish spirituality. Right, well, I, I wouldn't say that Moses uh, kind of figures centrally in Jewish spirituality just because he is to some extent so inimitable. I, I suppose the, the one way in which uh, Moses figures in, in Jewish spiritual practices as a figure of humility, though it doesn't, well, it does come across even in the burning bush passage that we read uh, in Moses' turning aside or in his resistance to the prophetic call uh, that, that follows the burning bush revelation. Uh, but Moses uh, elsewhere in the Bible is characterized, elsewhere in the Torah, in the, uh, in the five books of Moses is characterized as the most humble uh, of human beings. Uh, and so he becomes a model for, uh, for humility. He um, says, I can't do this, I stammer. Right, right, right. right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Francesca, is it something similar in Christian humility, spirituality? Humility, yes. Yeah. You know, we have a great statue of Moses on the Notre Dame campus and he doesn't look humble at all. He's standing there and he's giving the law and what's it called? Yeah, what's first down Moses. Yes, yes. first down right. Moses. Yeah. A, a so he, he doesn't look look at all like, it's more like a football interpretation than a Jewish or yeah. Christian interpretation. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> just also in, in, in Islam, uh, you know, Moses play an important role in Muslim spirituality. Um, even though the Quran seemed to emphasize the legalistic aspect of mosaic law, but Muslim Sufis on ascetic draw from the Quranic presentation several characteristics of Moses that inspired them in their spiritual journey. The two most important thing that they uh, cited from, from the Quran is one, Moses' prayer, and the second one is asking for forgiveness. Right. So um, the, the two things are so important. Right, thank you. So friends, thank you for joining us and be sure to be with us for the next episode of Minding Scripture, where divine word and human reason meet. <laughs>